0: Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Fiona Moss. Fiona Moss is the director of Natalie Kate Moss Trust, which was set up in 2012 by the Moss family following the sudden death of Natalie at the age of 26 after an unexpected brain hemorrhage. In this show, we hear the tragic story of Natalie, a healthy, vibrant 26-year-old woman. We discuss why brain hemorrhages are a neglected silent killer with death cases larger than breast or lung cancer that can catch any one of us anytime, as well as how to check your risk and how to reduce your risk for brain hemorrhages. Additionally, we dive into Fiona's inspiring wisdom about how to live a meaningful life and make the most of our time on earth. This topic deserves awareness with you and your loved ones. Enjoy. Fiona, help us understand your sister Natalie's story, what type of person was she, which dreams did she have, and where was she in life when the tragedy happened?
1: Yeah, Natalie was 26 when she had her brain hemorrhage, so very young, and at that stage in life where a lot of us have... Been to uni and we're just starting to get ourselves out on our career path. She'd actually just moved to London, started a career at Karen Millen, which is a major fashion label, and was very much in the prime of her life. She lived a very, let's say, normal life, as most of us do, going on that journey into adulthood, starting to explore, be excited the fact that you now have money and you can do things in your life. And I think. The tragedy was emphasized by the fact of how many people could just relate to the point point she was in her life as well. She was also a very bubbly character. She was very healthy. There was nothing that suggested that she was ill or something might happen to her. I think it's that stark... Sudden change, and you now just going from everything was fine to complete devastation. As I say, she was in London and she was actually at a radio show, Radio One. She was in the audience at Radio One, and she just got this terrible headache and she was rushed to hospital and my mum and I have said this many times before she was actually in the very best place that she could have been there was no what ifs she was right around the corner from one of the best neuro hospitals in the country but she's been traveling she's been all around the world she's been scuba diving she's been bungee jumping and you think about this could have happened then at any of those points and then you think she was on an island in Fiji there would be no hope in that situation but at least she was in the best place. So there was never this question of what if she was near a hospital? And I think for so many people that go through tragedies, sometimes the hardest part, as well as dealing with grief, is the questions of this didn't happen. What if that changed? What if that small thing happened? And with Natalie, unfortunately, I don't believe there was anything necessarily that could have could have changed what had happened to her. And we can talk more about her type of brain a hemorrhage, let's say, but she had something in her brain called a, aneurysm that's a bulge in the blood vessel and that can weaken by pressure and there's no particular reason why that particular the aneurysm was weak and what came under pressure and burst that day and caused a bleed in her brain but as I said before she was in the best place possible for what had happened and unfortunately it just did happen and I think for us in a way you try and find the positive in what happened and I think one positive is that she was in the best place, but also all the goodness that have come out of it in the charity as well, which I'm, I'm sure we will speak about too. So yeah, so as I say, she was in the prime of her life, but this was now 11 years ago. Oh, 12 years ago, sorry, 11 years ago when we set up the charity, but 12 years ago. So it's been quite a long time since.
0: I think what what is so dis- disturbing about Natalie's story is that what you alluded to young and healthy and in the prime of her life and on a trajectory to go out and conquer the world and bubbly and no signs that anything of that could happen. Mm-hmm. And in the best place where if it has to happen, where it should happen and still she passed away that it, it, it just screams uncertainty. And it goes against every biological instinct that something like that should happen.
1: Yeah, 100%. And as I said before, I think that's why for so many of our friends and family and wider network, it really shook a lot of people. And I think it's also shook a lot of people because it happened, one, it happened out of the blue, but you don't necessarily hear of brain hemorrhages happening that much. The irony is they do. They happen a lot. They happen. They're more frequent than both of the top two cancers. You have 3 million deaths a year from brain hemorrhage but 4.6 million cases and there's 2.2 million cases of lung cancer and 2.2 million cases of breast cancer but you hear about them so much more but you don't hear about brain hemorrhages and I think that's also why it was just so shocking you just don't hear about them as much as well yet let alone to somebody who is as you say in the prime of her life bubbly happy fun there's nothing that you would expect to go wrong.
0: Why do you think you don't hear more about brain hemorrhages?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. It's a question that I've been pondering, I think for two reasons. One, I think because it is a bit of an enigma and people shy away. They have, it's like this ostrich, ostrich effect where people just put their head in the stand when they're not sure of why things happen. Can I prevent it? What can I do about it? I think there's that side of it. I think also because when I give you stats such as 3 million people a year, die from brain hemorrhages and actually only three out of five people will survive within one month of having a brain hemorrhage these stats haven't changed in 40 years so again it's it's this problem that we are struggling to solve but with other things such as uh, breast cancer or lung cancer we're finding solutions. And so there is this kind of positive reinforcement by the fact that there is progress. So let's cling on to that progress and find more progress. And I think as well, then there is probably a third point, which is that so often people get things like breast cancer. And then when they're even going through their treatment or after it, they are they're the voice. They become advocates for that campaign. Whereas with those who suffer from a brain hemorrhage, it's such a distinct line in the stand. There is very much a before and an after. And you'll actually be really lucky if you make it to after. And if you do make it to after, the chances of you having really severe disability is is very real. And I think because of that, you almost then don't have the people who have the capacity to actually be able to campaign or to be able to be a voice. There are people out there, but because you don't have that strength in numbers, that's probably not as loud as some of these other conditions as well.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So a big problem. You have little. You had little progress in reducing that problem. There are no real voices who can, in an emotional way, rally people up around this. Because as you said, there's so much a before and after, and with unfortunately, with most of the cases afterwards, they are struggling so much with themselves. They they can't go out and campaign for these kind of things. Allow me a side question here, who are the typical victims of a brain hemorrhage?
1: In truth it can be anyone really and that's what's scary but it's not to say, I don't know, to just to be generic, I don't know, women over 50 or men over 50. There are risk factors that contribute to somebody having a brain hemorrhage but it is not necessarily a group of people who are more at risk. Natalie proves that she was healthy and well and still, and 26 young, she still had a brain hemorrhage as well. And this is why for our mission as a charity, it's so incredibly important that we get this message out to more people and all ages and all demographics as well, and really help them to understand the reality of brain hemorrhages, but also the fact that there are ways that we can prevent them as well. We talk about it just happening to Natalie out of the blue. Could we prevent it or could we not? We're not really sure, we don't think necessarily we could. But we know that a huge amount of brain hemorrhages are preventable through one simple uh, measure, and that is your blood pressure as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. But I think this is where it's really real for people to be aware of the risk that it can present to them at any age.
0: Because it seems like something like a brain hemorrhage is something that people need to be worried about if they're of certain above certain age, they smoke, drink, eat fast food, don't move, and all of these kind of things. But from what you say, it seems that across the board, not independent, but despite very healthy living, it could basically catch you catch everyone anytime and the numbers are higher than some of these cancer forms lung and breast cancer that every one of us has on their radar to mm-hmm. check for uh, yeah. every now and then especially if you're female now when it comes to breast cancer
1: yeah 100% that we all have different biology right our, all our bodies made in different ways we all have all our organs work in slightly different functions and the same is true of our brain For some people, they can have things like abnormalities of uh, blood vessels in their brains, which could be a bit of a tangle, and that could be one cause of having a brain hemorrhage if those tangles get bulged and weakened through things such as smoking, high blood pressure, etc, etc. But you can also have something called an aneurysm, which I mentioned before as well. And sometimes you can just have those things, you can be born with those things, they can develop as well. Um, But the risk factor is when you have... lifestyle factors, such as you've mentioned before, such as smoking, such as eating unwell, such as being overweight, such as having high blood pressure. They can all cause problems in in these vessels in the brain and cause them to burst. And I think it's important to mention because we've probably not necessarily said it yet, is that a brain hemorrhage ultimately is when you have bleeding either in or on the surface of the brain. So what we want to do is prevent that pressure going into the brain, which is why one of our biggest campaigns in the charity is around encouraging people to be checking their blood pressure. Because if you can be checking your blood pressure and therefore managing your blood pressure, it can help to reduce the risk of that pressure going to the brain and therefore having a brain hemorrhage. Now, like you said, we think about these things being a problem for people that are older, people that are overweight, people that are smoking, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is we know that anybody that can have high blood pressure and you can still have high blood pressure, even if you're young, even if you you self-diagnose yourself as being fit, being well, that you don't smoke, you can still have high blood pressure. And we know that the age group Between 16 and 35, proportionally, have the highest number of cases, have the highest number of undiagnosed cases of high blood pressure proportionally to the number of cases versus all the other age groups. So, this just shows that if we can be managing our blood pressure better at all ages. We can therefore reduce the risk of having a brain hemorrhage. It doesn't mean that it will just, you know, necessarily wipe out all potential of it ever happening, just as you might be really healthy, really fit and, and get a cancer. Sometimes things do just happen. But what we're aiming to do is reduce the risk. And what we call it as a charity is preventing the preventable. And we see that some, a lot of the time, a lot of these... Uh, brain hemorrhages happen as a result of lifestyle factors that are contributing to high blood pressure. And this is why what we are really aiming to do is to encourage people to be more conscious and taking more self-responsibility to prevent these things themselves. I think so often people are always seeking an external help or just hoping that a pill will fix it or this, that and the other, rather than just thinking, how is my daily life contributing to my blood pressure, and thereafter, how is that potentially putting me at risk of not just brain hemorrhages? To be honest, high blood pressure is the contributing factor to 10 million deaths a year. If you put that number into perspective, there were 7 million deaths over three years as a, as a result of COVID. So that's a huge number. And but if we, you really consider how is your lifestyle contributing to your blood pressure? I think it's just taking that little extra bit of self-responsibility to help manage it and therefore, as we say, prevent the preventable. It's important to mention that your blood pressure reading is a snapshot in time. It could be high, maybe you're super stressed in the moment and then you have a high reading and you're like, oh no, I have high blood pressure but that's not necessarily the case. You could then take some breaths and calm down and then your blood pressure will be normal. If you keep taking your blood pressure and it is consistently high, that is when you want to be going to a GP and seeing, helping to bring it down. And that's what we want to be monitoring is what is your blood pressure like over time?
0: Yeah, blood pressure is one of those measures with a quite high variation between when at one point in the day you, you take it, what you have eaten before, as you said, what type of stress uh, levels you had before. And, and so there can be a very big difference in, In the individual takings of that measure and yeah in in business you say what you don't measure you don't improve yeah so let's assume somebody has a high blood pressure and we figure out it's lifestyle related so that's probably something that you first should check out with your gp but if it is lifestyle related what are the common causes of it being lifestyle related what are the top things that people should be thinking about changing in their life if it's really lifestyle related and of course everybody needs to double check does that make sense could that be something really that that's causing my life so we're talking about population level on average here
1: yeah hundred percent as you've rightly pointed out If you feel like you have high blood pressure the first point of call is your doctor is your gp and having a conversation with them but i would also really consider for yourself what could be contributing to that high blood pressure key things to think about are one significant thing is stress now unfortunately as a society as a global society stress has become a real problem and it's almost also normal as well, which is the unfortunate thing. And I think sometimes you don't know how stressed you are until you come out of that stressful situation. And sometimes I also think it's easier to have one big problem of stress because then you know what the problem is. You probably take more proactive action to manage it. But unfortunately, in so many of our lives now, we actually have a lot of micro stresses and that could be like an inbox, which is full and you can't keep on top of it, being late, sitting in a traffic jam, all these small things that just give you that moment of stress. And that's fine if it's one or two, but we have hundreds of them throughout the day. Dr. Rangan Chatterjee Chatterjee talks about this a lot. And I think that in itself is a problem because it's very hard to notice those smaller things and actually manage them. But I think it's really important to be putting measures through in your life and throughout your day of how do I manage stress? And that could be things such as journaling, that could be things such as uh, meditation, just going for a walk for 10 minutes outside without a podcast, without a phone, not all those distractions, but just really considering and maybe and a very real conversation with yourself as well. Again, this comes back to what I said earlier, just being very proactive about your own health as well and actually just taking back control of it too and just be real with yourself. How stressed am I and do I genuinely need to do something about this as well? So stress is one, really being acutely aware of how stressed you are. Sleep is another key thing as well. Again, thinking, how much am I getting in terms of sleep? Am I getting good quality sleep? I think so many of us survive, You, I definitely used to be like this where I'd go to bed late and then force myself to be waking up in the morning to go to the gym when I knew I didn't have enough sleep. But I think maybe as I've got older and wiser, I've realised that ultimately sleep is our bedrock to everything else. The bedrock to how stressed we are and how much we can manage stress the next day. That our bedrock to how well we exercise or whether we exercise, what we eat. For the rest of um, the following day, it's really important. Plus sleep in itself is the time when our body really resets, it manages hormones, etc. I think just being really, again, proactive about am I getting enough good quality sleep as well being overweight is a huge thing carrying too much weight on your body can have a key is a key contributor to blood pressure Uh, also um, having uh, foods not having a nutritious diet a a balanced diet as well eating too much salt and it's interesting because we had this conversation uh, the other day um, where we talk about on our website of having too much salt and I think that's largely a problem for a lot of our society in the UK so we talk about trying to consider having less salt but obviously there is a huge role for salt to play in our chemical makeup and our biology in our body as well so it's just really considering am i getting the right levels of salt in my diet as well too alcohol is another thing as well and again unfortunately it's embedded in, in our society it's very normalized especially the weekend or oh i'm just having one glass of wine and there's always an excuse there's always a reason there's always an occasion but again, it just comes back to being realistic with yourself. How much am I drinking? And should I, should I consider, even if you, even if we all consider just drinking 10% less, has a huge impact on your body. These percentages, either way, can have a huge impact. And finally, and probably most importantly, is smoking. And I think we're, in 2023, I think so many of us are now very acutely aware of the damages that smoking can have on our body. But when we're thinking about blood pressure, it's one of the, the key contributing factors as well. When we talk about lifestyle, they're some of the key contributors as well. Actually, on our website, uh, we have a prevention page and we've got lots of information around thinking about these six areas, but then going into more depth on how to manage stress or how to sleep better or alcohol consumption. All of these like different areas, we go into a bit more depth as well. So if you do want any more information, that's on our website too.
0: Very many of these things, you you could in general put a headline under those and say, if you live a decently healthy life, Mm -hmm. most of these risk factors are covered. The challenge for most of the people is that in order to change something in their life, very seldomly or very few people have the capacity to do that because of rational reasons. Most of the people have the information, most of the people know what kind of behavior is good for them what kind of behavior is not good for them but still changing them is the big struggle and one thing that has helped me a lot with behaviors that i wanted to get rid of is think about this more in an emotional way and as an example you talked about stress and sleep in the beginning and yes you can look at it very much from a health perspective stress too much stress is not good and you know, to, to sleep, definitely not good. Sleep is this wonder pill. <laughs> if there's one magic pill, it is sleep. But you could also think about this from a life happiness perspective. So, I all, And it, and it's a kind of privileged way to think about things because it requires you to have optionality. It requires you to have certain leverage or control over your life, meaning you're able to induce changes. But if you are in such a position, then thinking about hey, my life is short. There are a couple of thousand days that I still have left now. I'm 40. So if you have a death calendar in front of you, you can see how many people you're likely going to still have, how many days you're likely going to still have left with you. And they're not that many. And just this notion that I rush through life, stressed and underslept because of some external goal or some, yeah, likely if you think about it, some reason that is, not really meaningful to you. And that's not always the case. If you're, for example, a newborn parent, a new parent, I also know that there are certain phases of little stress, a a lot of stress and little sleep, which have a lot of meaning to you. But for the most of my life, always when I felt very stressed and had little sleep, it was not really a very meaningful reason for why I did that. But for some societal reason, I just still followed through on that keeping up with the genesis the next promotion the next whatever you want to have i want to make sure that my freaking car in the garage is as big as the one um, from the neighbor and just trying to think about how much more happy and at peace i am with a bit less stress and a bit more sleep and yeah maybe a little bit less income maybe all of these kind of things at least for me this was a an emotionally more compelling reason to change some of these things rather than thinking about my blood pressure. Although rationally, it's an an absolute immense and hugely important reason. But unfortunately, likely for most of the people, you only emotionally feel the, the, the need to check your blood pressure once something very bad has happened.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all of that, if I'm being honest. And I think there's a lot, a lot there to talk about. But And and I totally agree. I think for so many people, look, all the information in the world is out there, let's say. All of that you you hear, you go on the podcast, you hear somebody talk about breathing better or living better or this, that and the other. And all the information is there. The question is, why don't people do it? I do not believe for one second that somebody is like, cool, I want to have high blood pressure. Cool, I'm happy to be stressed. People want to change. They want to feel better. They want to live longer. They want to live longer in a, in a way that they live well as well. But the question is, why don't they do that? And I think you're completely right. They are caught up largely in this this battle and probably this internal battle where they're thinking, okay, I know what's right for me, but I'm also trying to keep up with societal expectations and these external demands from everyone and anything, whether that's your work, your career, your family, your friends, trying to keep up with the speed of modern day lifestyle, I think is it's really hard. And I think sometimes it's a case of which one wins. And because of the immediate, let's say, response or immediate benefit of I know that if I can get this work done I'll feel I'll have that immediate rush of I've achieved something whereas actually you don't get the benefit you don't get that that kick from oh I just my blood pressure's okay or you, th- you don't see that in the same way and I think sometimes that immediate gratification doesn't come through with the hell your health and when you're investing in your health you won't see the returns for potentially 5, 10, 20, 30 years sometimes. But ultimately, that's what investing is. Sometimes you don't see the results straight away. And I think sometimes people are caught with that as well. But I think it's really important to come back to a few points. Now, I used to do coaching and I would talk to my clients a lot about this. And we would talk about their life forward and their career. And I, I would ask them, I think it's really important to have future perspective on your life of, If you get to the end of your life and you have, uh, and you're at your funeral, what would you want people to say about you? How would you want to look back at your life? Would you want to, like you say, oh, I'm so glad I was so stressed all the time by work. Or would I want to live a life where I felt healthy, I was happy, I did something with purpose, I felt calm. All of these positive emotions and then actually starting to take action with that future perspective of does this next bit of action allow me to create a life of the one that I would hope to look back on? And that could be the smallest thing, such as, do I really want to go out on Saturday night and get absolutely smashed and feel awful the next day and do that repeatedly week on week, year on year? Because it might just be Saturday, but if you do it over and over again, it's one seventh of your year. And so it's really important to have that, future perspective. The same thing as well with how stressed you are at work and kind of managing that. Is this creating the life that you want to live? How much time you spend with your family? How present you are? How much you're looking after your health and being as well? I think it's very rare for people to associate their short-term actions with the long-term effect it has on their life. And this ultimately comes down to what quality of life are you creating for yourself? Because whilst you might not actually be seeing the benefits of it immediately, you might not get that immediate gratification, it is thinking of how is this affecting my life in the long term. And I think that's where it's really important to frame all of this because your blood pressure is no different. Yes, you might not necessarily see the benefits of having normal blood pressure by eating well and going to the gym etc but you're going to live longer and it's considering how do i want this to affect my longer life
0: unfortunately long-term happiness everything that you do for long-term happiness or long-term progress does not feel good in the moment very often it feels bad in the moment because the feeling good thing would be to sit on the couch and Mm -hmm. binge watch tv it would be to eat that fast food or that sweet dessert, it would be to just browse on your phone and watch social media, everything that's there for long term happiness, the healthy choice in the restaurant, the working out the no, I'm not scrolling on social media, I'm keeping focused on my work, all of that feels bad in the moment. And there's there's an evolutionary reason why humans developed to seek this immediate pleasure in the moment because that helped us survive as a species it doesn't make you it helped us reproduce it helps us reproduce it doesn't help it it doesn't help your individual happiness definitely not your long-term happiness but it helped you survive and also what you said i I would love to have that stat i I don't know what it is but I, i think the percentage of time that most of the people don't live in the present but while they do something think about mm-hmm. what could happen in the future or what happened in the past or something else that they should rather do i don't know how much it is i wouldn't be shocked if it's more than 50 if it's more than 50% for most of the people and that means that half of your life you're not living because you're constantly thinking about things that things in the future that might not even happen things in the past that have happened yes get your learning out of that but then move on and if you do something constantly think about something else it is you're basically robbing yourself of all these of all this feeling connected in the moment in the present some of the people that I really admire are those who feel let's say satisfied happy is a very dangerous word but feel satisfied in the moment although they're doing a mundane task or, or something that doesn't give me that dopamine rush like watching TV or, or binge watching social media, but there's a meaning. There's a meaning to it. After what has happened to you or, or your sister, which must have had a very severe impact on your family in general, how, I hope you did, so I'm going to ask it that way, how did you manage to get back towards a purpose and satisfaction, maybe happiness in life?
1: Yeah. I think, firstly, I think the point that you were saying around how many people are actually present, I would say it's an awful lot less than 50%. I'd be really surprised if half of the people were actually present in their activities, but that's a totally a side point. But your the question around Natalie, and I think the, the way that I've moved through life since, I think when Natalie had her brain hemorrhage and passed away, I was 20 years old. It was like three weeks before my 21st birthday. And at that point, you're an adult, but I think you're still very much an adolescent in many ways. And I was at university and completely carefree. Her death was very much a schism between what I felt was my childhood and my adulthood. And it really shifted my whole perspective on life. Before that, I wouldn't say that I lived with purpose and did all these. I was very mindful and really conscious about, I don't know, how foods are affecting my body and my exercise and whatnot. Because I was also 20 when it wasn't really a conversation that I was having. And I think, I don't think it would be honest and truthful of me to say that in the following years two, three years after Natalie died, that it really made me do things differently. It probably woke me up in different ways to be like, I'm really going to go out and live my life. And I did. And I went to live in Madrid and I did all these amazing things. But from a point of, I need to live my life in full. And actually it had the effect of what you were saying before, whereas that put a lot of stress as well on my life. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about my health at the same time as well. I think, to be honest, I think... that experience, coupled with another huge experience in my life, which was unfortunately when I was 25, my boyfriend got diagnosed with cancer. And he then struggled with cancer for three years and then passed away when I was 29. And I think that whole decade of my life, ultimately from when Natalie had her brain hemorrhage to my boyfriend passing away the whole experience in itself really made me wake up and consider what do i really want from life how do i want to live it that question i asked before at the end of my life what do i want to have said my life looked like what do i want to not regret i don't want to live a life of regret i would probably say one of my biggest fears is fear of regret and i think the biggest the biggest things that i've realized through all of these experiences is look that things happen in life that you can't prevent. Things happen, such as nothing having a brain hemorrhage, which couldn't prevent. My boyfriend had cancer, we couldn't have prevented that. He was again very fit, young, nothing wrong with him. And I think there's a lot that does happen that we could prevent. The majority of things that happen could prevent. When somebody lives in a way that is very unhealthy and then has a problem with their blood pressure, then that causes more problems in their life. or uh, many different things that we could prevent. We could prevent things like being in a career that we hate. We don't have to be having, we had a conversation before we came on the podcast about Monday and the fact that I used to hate Mondays in my old job and now I really love them because I love my work. If you're hating your work five out or seven days of the week, that's a huge proportion of your life that you're really not enjoying. And If you're living for the weekend, And then half of the weekend, you're just resting from the week. Is that really living? I would put a question mark over. And so this is where I think the conversation around actually just taking more uh, responsibility for your own life, because it is short and it is very fragile. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm very acutely aware of that. You don't really know when that kind of end date, let's say, is and some you might wake up one day and then suddenly something really disastrous happens and that sounds really heavy but it's also very real and I think as a western society we struggle to have this conversation around the fragile nature of life and the fact that it isn't permanent And at some point we all die. But I think we all fear that so much that we do what I said right at the beginning is there's this ostrich effect. We put our head in the sands and just hope that just carry on rather than taking responsibility and being really acutely aware of, no, actually, how do I want to live my life? And that does, that's a big question. And it doesn't have to be how do I want to live my life? But it could be how do I want to feel today? And as I said before, with my coaching clients, I used to ask them that quite a lot. How do you want to feel today? That could be healthy that could be happy, that could be calm. But if you repetitively do that and consider how do you wanna feel each day and take the action to try and feel that way, what you'll see is that over time then that consistent action and that consistent small question just adds up and you start to create this life that actually makes you feel the way that you want to feel because that's what it comes down to. It comes down to how do you want to feel within your own life?
0: Thank you for sharing so in in such an authentic and vulnerable way this tragic happenings, I wasn't aware of that with your boyfriend and I find it very inspiring how you take that and use it to live life more presently to be aware of how short life is but take something positive out of it and now also with your work at the Natalie K. Moss Trust, help other people with that. And I'd love to hear one or two more sentences around what your mission at the Trust is, you as a director, how, how are you steering this? How can other people help you? And if you have, a word or two about, do, you, do you, have you thought about how, we could try to help more people systematically get into such a mindset because uh, my daughter's still reasonably young, so she's two and a half. But I do worry about or think about how to h- help her get, and I don't know what exactly this, but the quote unquote perspective on life because once you go, you will be, most of the society does not have the perspective that you just shared and all or most of the institutions that my my daughter will want run through will put her rather into that mindset of current society she goes into school she's supposed to do this and that she's supposed to fit she's supposed to fit into then when she's 18 or 20 whatever it is she's supposed to choose a job her one job that job is supposed to be what she is so along just along the notion that you are your job is his is a very dangerous one and then she will hit yeah all, all the other parts of society and the people working in her company all that stuff who most of them will go through that and it's very difficult and it takes a lot of yeah, I don't know. Start, either you are really a very different person from, from your brain or upbringing, or it takes a lot of something happens, starting emotion, starting energy, in order to get you into something.
1: Yeah, like I do agree. That I think, unfortunately, sometimes it does take something or some things quite traumatic and, or dramatic to happen that kind of does really wake you up to some of these things, which I believe is one of the biggest. It's a real sadness, really, that actually you need something bad to happen to wake you up to what life is really about, which is why I try and share quite a lot on things like social media and particularly when I was coaching to share that message and share my learnings so that people can learn from them rather than necessarily having to go through something so tragic in order to acquire those learnings as well. I think on that point, and I'll talk about the mission of the trust latterly. But I think there's a few things that come to mind when you're talking about, like, how do you cultivate that mindset and support? And I agree. I think the next generation coming through, and I think I actually almost feel sorry for them because they will be hounded by more expectations than we were because of things like social media and the internet and AI as well. And I think all of these things have their good things, but they also have their bad things, which can, and we've seen, can be damaging to things like mental health so I think that one part of that is managing triggers and there's going to be a huge amount of learning for generations really to come around how do you manage triggers particularly from something which is always on ie social media and the internet I think there's something that I think is really important in life for all of us is actually is actually chosen suffering versus unchosen suffering now I truly believe that I have been able to manage a lot of unchosen suffering that I've had in my life, whether that's with Natalie or Andrew, because I've also chosen chosen suffering, which is ultimately putting yourself in difficult situations, which tests your resilience or tests your courage. Now, I've, I would say I'm a reasonably fit person, but I'd like to do things that kind of push myself a little bit more. And I think it works both ways, that I think if you know that you've overcome some of the most the hardest things in your life, i.e. unchosen suffering, you then gives you the the mindset to go, if I did that, I can do this. I can do this chosen suffering. But actually, they work both ways. So I think that's a really important skill. If you can put yourself in situations voluntarily that are uncomfortable... And are difficult are books out there about the comfort crisis, and we're all we're all too inclined to be more comfortable than uncomfortable. But if you can put yourselves in this position of um suffering, chosen suffering, I think that can really help you um when you come to these problems in life as well. But I think a big thing as well is you talked about your daughter when she grows up and then she becomes defined by her work and whatnot. I think for all of us we should be celebrating the person who they are rather than what they do and i think so often in our society we're very much like a tick box i have a degree i do this as a job i I do x i do crossfit i am a marathon runner whatever it may be it's all these external qualifications these external factors to who you are rather than these internal factors which i think are really important and help to mold a person because i think that person if they are led by kindness if they're resilient if they are generally led by purpose in their life and very much more emotionally intelligent and look at the world with perspective the external things fall into place i believe as well Simon Sinek is probably a good example of this in terms of what he talks about, like the why. If you lead from a place of values and from a place of purpose, the rest of the things don't fall into place, but work a lot better. If you're leading a life from your external factors and then try and cultivate some purpose and some values to that, it's really difficult and it becomes a little bit... There's a bit of friction. But I think as an individual, if we can cultivate the person and celebrate the person and their attributes and their values and are they kind, rather than congratulating them on their, a oh, well done, you you were the best in the past, and only congratulating them on their external achievements. I think that then ultimately will allow people to move forward with a lot more understanding about who they are and how they can navigate their own life and their own difficulties and problems, because we will all have difficulties and problems. You do not go through life without any problems. So the more that you can understand yourself and your own qualities and your own strengths and also your own weaknesses as well, I think weaknesses should be celebrated and should be called out because we learn from them too. So I think it's always coming back to those internal qualities that really help us. And then to your first point around the mission of the trust, I guess it it also links back into that, which is I really want to support people to take back control of their own life. We talk about preventing the preventable, but that comes from an individual taking personal responsibility for their diet, how much they exercise, how they're looking after their health. And through that, hopefully we can prevent preventable brain hemorrhages from happening. But what I also want to do is I really, and this is obviously, I know we've not really even mentioned it, is that we work with Manchester University in the UK to generate funds for their research into better treatment after somebody has a brain hemorrhage. I mentioned before that only three out of five people will survive a brain hemorrhage within one month and our mission collectively collaboratively with the university is to change those stats they haven't changed in 40 years and so by actually bringing more funding more focus to this area we really want to find a way that if even if we can't prevent all of these brain hemorrhages from happening the ones that do happen then we can start to we can have a treatment to ultimately improve survival rates and actually lessen the severity of disability after it as well and we're seeing results come through but there's a long way to go but the fact that we're seeing results already after 11 years of of research which is a relatively short amount of time in that in space that's treatment that's now being expanded across the uk is really exciting and it gives us the momentum to keep pushing forward as well
0: after everything that you have experienced so far fiona what does happiness mean for you
1: i think happiness for me is Happiness for me is, I've described this in many ways in in different points over the last few years. It's It's when my soul feels content and happy. And I think the reason I say my soul is because I think so many of us, or maybe not, but I'm sure all of us at some point, even for just one moment in our lives, have had those moments where we're just so at peace it could be that we're just surrounded by our family and that just feels like there is no worry in the world there is no weight on your shoulder you feel energetically just completely at peace you don't feel tired you're not worried about anything your mind feels clear and I think happiness for me in that description comes in many different ways but particularly when I'm say like by water or up a mountain and can just have that space just to think because I think There's so much that is going on for all of us, but in in my personally, in my own life, there's always so many thoughts. There's so much to process from life as well. And I think a part of that is just happiness of content of the fact that I'm living my life the way that I want to live it. And I feel like I'm moving forward and I feel like I have purpose as well. I might not necessarily be achieving all that I wanna achieve, in that moment there's always more to go after but i don't feel like happiness for me comes at a point where i've achieved a million pounds for this or whatnot it's not a, a metric it is a feeling and a feeling that i'm aligned to my own life's purpose and a feeling that i'm living my life on my terms i think that's what uh, happiness is for me
0: when you're 80 hopefully 80 no one will spend time with you because of your achievements but only because of your personality and on your funeral no one will go there and will put a, will put a speech out and say she got promoted to X on December 20, 2012 and she got promoted in a new car in, in April 2028 20, it's all about what you mentioned before the, the, the person and, and the why of that person. Mm. Where should listeners go to learn more about you and your work and potentially support that work?
1: Yeah, so the best place to go is our, either our website, which is www.nathykatemoss.co.uk. Or our Instagram, which is trust, which is quite a mouthful. But essentially, if you just search either on LinkedIn or Facebook or any other social channels, the Kate moss trust you will find us as well.
0: We'll put that into the show notes. And I, Fiona, I really want to thank you. I feel that I got the energy of a 20-year-old and the wisdom of an 80-year-old person <laughs> in, in this podcast. Everything that I could ask for
1: no, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And honestly, all the best for your mission. I, I hope that you can continue to do a lot of great work.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.